Number 10, Three Cosmic Messages, Second Quarter, 2023. Daniel Duda. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're starting Lesson 10, Satan's Final Deceptions, in the quarter entitled Three Cosmic Messages. Dr. Daniel Duda is our moderator, and Livius is going to offer our opening prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity, this time that we can get together and to discuss your word, to learn the truths about you, your character, and your kingdom. Be with Daniel as he leads us in our discussion today, guide and direct our thoughts, and help us to bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Livius, and welcome, everybody. We are doing lesson number 10, and this is the second lesson on the second angel's message. Interestingly, we had six lessons on the first angel's message, two lessons on the second, and there will be two more coming on the third angel's message. We already mentioned in previous lessons that what happens in Revelation 14, it's a response to what the unholy trinity does. So you have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then there is dragon, sea beast, and the land beast who try to counteract what God is doing. So the Father gives the authority to Son, and the Holy Spirit doesn't speak about himself. He testifies about the Son. So in Revelation 13, you read about the dragon giving the authority to the sea beast, and then the land beast doesn't speak about itself. It just points to the sea beast and leads people to worship that beast. So you have this response that the population of the world is deceived, people are deceived, and the whole world went after the beast, Revelation 13, 8, except for those, Revelation 14, 1, who follow the Lamb, because they are not deceived. And why is that so? Because the three angels' messages give you the reason why they are not deceived. It's God's last warning message to humanity. And we said that in Revelation 13, 10, it speaks about the fact that this calls for endurance and faithfulness of people. And so every time we study the prophecy, the purpose is to build a faithfulness to God and to build endurance, that things in life don't always develop the way you wish for, you pray, and then what do you do? Does it mean that God has failed? Does it mean that everything should be the way we expect things to be? No, you need to stay faithful and develop the endurance that things are going to change. And we will mention in this lesson that when Nebuchadnezzar came to Babylon and defeated it, it seemed like a terrible disaster. Jeremiah warns people of the day that no amount of quoting the Psalms, that Zion is invisible, she will not fall, that... God is on our side, so we'll be victorious. It's going to change the fact that Nebuchadnezzar is coming and he's going to be victorious. Don't say temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, because this is what is going to happen. The title of the lesson is Satan's Final Deceptions. And once again, it's very doctrinal. The memory text is the famous quotation from the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And of course, if the word comes from the Lord, of course, it's truth, because God cannot lie. And if we allow that to wash on our mind, on our thinking, if we reflect on that, it's going to have a transforming or sanctifying power on the way we think. Now, if you look under number one, there is a statement of purpose. 
in the lesson and it says in this week's lesson we'll continue looking not only at Babylon's deceptions but also at Jesus's plan to save us from them and the death that they would otherwise bring and the lesson starts with this story from Chicago the Tylenol capsules have been laced with potassium cyanide and it became the deadly poison and because somebody tampered with the medication and people didn't know it and they died and so it compares with what the devil is doing to the inhabitants of the earth with the wine of babylon let's go to matthew 24 and read the warnings of jesus matthew 24 verses 23 to 28 then if anyone says to you look here is the messiah or there he is do not believe it for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce great signs and omens to lead astray if possible even the elect take note i have told you beforehand so if they say to you look he is in the wilderness do not go out if they say look he is in the inner rooms do not believe it for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? So he's talking about the false messiahs, the false prophets. He's saying that they will perform great signs and wonders. And the purpose of that is to deceive. Now he's warning the disciples ahead of time. And then he ends with verse 28. Wherever there is a carcass, the vultures will gather as well. And the purpose of that warning is that if you look at verses 6 to 10, he speaks about the wars and the rumors of wars. He speaks about the nations persecuting other nations, kingdoms fighting against kingdoms and famines and earthquakes. And then in verse 9, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. People will turn away from you. They are going to hate you. And you know, when the enemy comes from outside, you somehow prepare. You try to defend. You know it's a test of your endurance, of your faithfulness. But Jesus says in Matthew 24, there is something that has a potential to turn you into a dead body as much as outside persecution. What is it? It's a deception from inside. So as Paul says, from among you, Talking to elders, a false leaders, false prophets will arise. Jesus said, the false messiahs and prophets will turn away and try to deceive you. And so the deception has the same power to destroy your faith as an outward persecution. So while in persecution, you are threatened with the power of someone who wants to harm you if you don't follow them, if you don't comply with what they are suggesting, the deceptions are more deadly more dangerous because the outcome is the same. They will turn you into a carcass, into a dead body. They will kill your spirituality and the vultures, the enemy will triumph anyway. What are the implications of that for us? Talking about the fall of Babylon, the first angel's message focuses on the everlasting gospel, on the positive aspects. And the second angel's message focuses on the fact that, yes, there is something negative. It still is good news, but if you are not aware of the deceptions, they can rob you of the positive everlasting gospel of what God is doing. Larry? There's something confusing about that to me. In the notes from Ellen White for this week, there was a comment 
that the people that are lost are lost not because they believe something that wasn't true, but because they didn't believe the truth, which is an interesting way of stating all that. I get it, and I'm not sure I understand why that is. Yeah, we are going to look at that under number three when we look at Second Thessalonians 2. Paul actually presents it that God will send a powerful manifestation. And so people are not condemned for believing the wrong message. People are condemned because they did not have the love for truth to believe the right message. This brings us back to what we mentioned in the previous lesson, that coming out of Babylon is a constant process. When Ellen White comments on the second commandment in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, she says that in our times we don't make an image out of stone or wood that we bow down to, but any false picture of God is an idol. And if we are not willing to give up those false pictures, understanding of God, it can have the same impact on us as this wine that intoxicates you and impacts your judgment. Some years ago, I read about the research done with bus drivers. We know that usually the bus drivers are the most careful and experienced drivers of large vehicles, and their capacity to reverse is just amazing. And the research showed that after having some drinks, they would be willing to reverse the bus into a gate, which is narrower than the bus itself. They lose the capacity to judge. It was very interesting. Michael? I believe it comes in all forms. Success in politics, success in business, success in the entertainment industry, and so forth. And that becomes the Babylon for you, that being a success is the end in and of itself, rather than regarding it as whatever success you have is a gift from God and to be utilized in a proper and Christian manner to share your success with others. Okay, thank you. Lou? The further we are away from Christ, the smaller he looks. And it's very easy for us as humans to think that we're okay. And short of the indwelling Holy Spirit and a relationship daily with God, we're not okay. But the media these days tells us, hey, you're okay, I'm okay, everybody's okay. And that's really a lie from the devil. We're not okay apart from God and his love. Yes, it depends what you mean by you are okay. Well, nobody needs to change. You are okay just the way you are. And of course, God accepts us just the way we are, but he doesn't leave us there. Sure, sure. So when Eric Byrne came with the You Are Okay, I Am Okay bestseller, psychologically, it's a message that people need to hear. The message of condemnation doesn't help anyone. But if you take it that everything you believe is right, everything that you believe is true, that you don't need to change, then it creates altered reality. Yes. Ashley from Anchorage. My understanding of one of the aspects of our postmodern culture is that objective truth is unknowable. And consequently, it sets up a reality in which my truth is what I believe and your truth is what you believe. And the possibility for distortion of truth under those conditions is magnified from a more conservative culture that we may have experienced in the past. Yes, of course. And if the past is the way to go by, then 
it's worrisome. Of course, none of us has an objective grasp on truth. And that's why the community is so important, whether it's a community of scientists with the peer review, or it's a community of believers where we can get correction of our perception. It can be very helpful. Now, of course, there are different types of distortions that happen either in the community of scientists or in the community of believers. But yeah, let's make sure that God has a perfect and absolute perspective and all of us have only a partial understanding. Because what we are talking about, the Babylon is fallen, goes right to the pride that if you perceive or I perceive that I understand something infallibly, it's going to lead into the confusion and fall. And that's the story of Lucifer and that's the story of Babylon that starts as a gate to God and ends in confusion. Yes, Aaron. The verse I was quoting was from the end of First John, I believe. And the last verse says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And it seemed a little disconnected reading it over the years, like it's a little add-on on the end of the chapter. But it's actually in the context. He says, we are in him that is true. I forget exactly, but knowing and being in the true God is eternal life. And then he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And so what you were saying earlier about the false understanding of God is idolatry. And that makes total sense. And that explains the words of Jesus, where there is a carcass, the vultures will gather as well. So the false understanding has the potential to destroy you as much as the enemy's sword can destroy you. And while we are on our guard against the outward or the enemy that comes from outside, we can easily fall prey to the enemy that comes from inside or dangerous perspectives that are nothing else than false prophets, false messiahs, or false promises that if you go out into the wilderness or in a room or enter somehow deep inside, you find the silver bullet, the magic solution that it's out there. And so there's always plenty of these false messiahs, false preachers, and false prophets who promise an easy solution for a complex situation. Neil? Isn't this false picture of God character assassination Christ came to overcome? Okay. That was his purpose, to overcome the character assassination that had been going on for 4,000 years and is still going on today. So the methods of the devil of Satan have not changed. Oh, they've improved. Yeah. They've improved. Listen to some of the things that you hear. We sat in church a couple of years ago and we had a minister that decided to have Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning services. I mean, hopefully it's not such an abomination. Early Christians did the same. Yeah, but today, with what we know. <laughs> and then they went to do their work just on Easter Sunday. They remembered that Jesus was resurrected and then they disbanded and continued doing what they did. All right, Terry, let's go to Revelation 16. Verses 13 and 14. And I saw three foul spirits like frogs coming from the mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, and from the mouth of the false prophet. These are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Okay, so what is this three unclean, impure spirits that look like frogs? And false trinity uses them in order to deceive people, the whole world, by performing signs. Now, if you want to understand this, you need to go back to Exodus. And in Exodus 8, 
it starts, God said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go. But let me warn you, he is going to refuse the people go. And Pharaoh says, who is God? I don't know God. I am not letting these people go. I'm not going to lose cheap and easy labor force. And so God introduces himself. And the way he introduces himself is by these plagues. Now, if you look at chapter 7 and then chapter 8, the frogs, the plague of frogs, are the last plague that the sorcerers of Egypt are able to emulate. And so they are able to do something similar, and they say, ah, no big deal. They don't need to pay attention to that. And so Revelation is going to use this language and say, what is supposed to be the proof of superior power of God is going to be used by enemies of God as a proof that God is on their side. And so you read in Revelation 16 that it's the demonic spirit who performs signs, and as a result of that, the whole world gathers together, but they don't realize they are battling the Almighty. They go fighting God. And of course, you know the outcome. They cannot win. Let's go to Revelation 18, verse 2. He called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt of every foul spirit, a haunt of every foul bird, a haunt of every foul and hateful beast. And let's go to verse 23 as a result of this. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For merchants were the magnets of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And your magic spell led astray all the nations. What is this talking about? It's talking about supernatural signs. It's talking about miracles. So let's talk a little bit about miracles. The first time the miracles occur in the Bible is in the book of Exodus. In a significant manner, of course, you can find some miraculous things in the book of Genesis. But a major occurrence of miracles happens during the time of Exodus. And God uses the miracles to show that he's more powerful than the deities of Egypt. As a result of that, not only the Israelites leave Egypt, but the mixed multitudes joins them because they want to be on the winning side. And if your God is more powerful, then we are going with you. Now, you need to understand, depending when you date Exodus, it's about 13 or 1500 before Christ. And more or less, then you don't have any miracles for another 800 years or 700 years. And the miracles spring up at the time of Elijah and Elisha. And the interesting thing is that Elisha asks for a double portion of the Spirit to be poured out on him. And interestingly enough, he does twice as many recorded miracles as Elijah did. And then for the next 700 years, once again, you don't hear about miracles. And you come to the period of Jesus and his disciples, and Jesus comes with great power and does the miracles of healing, of feeding, calming the sea, etc., etc. Obviously, the time of Moses is not the time of greatest faith in God. On the contrary, God uses miracles because that's the language that people understand, both Israelites and the Egyptians. We could ask the question whether the time of Elijah or Elisha is a time of great spiritual pinnacle of Israel's history, 
or if it's a time of apostasy where God struggles to keep in touch with his people at all. And of course, then Jesus comes and needs to prove to people that with him, God himself is in their midst. And so the things that God did in Exodus and that God did during the time of Elijah, Elisha, he's still doing in their midst. However, let's go to 2 Thessalonians 2. And let's start reading verses 9 to 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The coming of the lawless one is apparent in the working of Satan, who uses all power, signs, lying wonders, and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion, leading them to believe what is false so that all who have not believed the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness will be condemned. And let's start with verse 1. As to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we beg you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as though from us to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed, the one destined for destruction. So, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul speaks about the fact that the trumpet will sound and then we who are alive will be caught up in the air. But in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, I need to do some correction here. If you believe that the second coming is around the corner, it's going to happen that soon, please don't be easily unsettled or alarmed, especially by those who are teaching that the day of the Lord has already come. It has not, because first needs to come a great apostasy. And that apostasy will be also within the church, and it's going to be successful because, verse 7, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work now. But there is something that is holding it back and will continue to do so for a while. But then, at the end of ages, the lawless one will be revealed. But the Lord Jesus will overthrow him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his parousia, in verse 8. But before the parousia of Jesus comes the parousia of the lawless one. So notice there is a false coming. The same word is used, the parousia, and it's based on how Satan works, using all sorts of display of power through signs and wonders in order to deceive people. So notice signs and wonders, miracles are used in the time of Moses to show that God is more powerful than the deities of Egypt. Signs and wonders, miracles are used in the time of Elijah and Elisha to show that God is more powerful than Baal. Remember the message of Elijah? How long will you limp on both sides? If God is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then serve him. But just make a decision. And as a result of that, after a powerful prayer, a fire falls from heaven on the right altar and proves that God of Israel is the true God. This was before the time of political correctness, and so Elijah is even taunting the prophets of Baal in a way that we would not recommend that you treat representatives of other religions nowadays because you get yourself into trouble. But he says, oh, maybe he went for a toilet break, so just shout louder, he will hear you, etc. And when the miracle happens and the fire falls, on the right altar, everybody bows down and says, everything is clear. 
No more discussion needed. God is God. And he institutes a great revival. Now, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, that before the parousia of Jesus, before the coming, the second coming of Christ, needs to come the parousia of the Satan himself, and he will use the miracles and signs. In other words, the fire from heaven is going to fall on the wrong altar, and people will say, clear enough, we don't need anything else, let's follow this. And it says there, and it's a deception, and they fall for it because they refuse to love the truth, and they fall for this powerful delusion, and they believe the lie. What's the implication of this for us, for our lives? That God allows Satan at the end of ages to use supernatural powers which deceive people, and the part of this Babylon is fallen, and this demons and deception is that people think they are serving God, yet they are deceived. And as the quotation that Larry quoted, and it's not because they are clueless, it's because somehow in the process of spiritual development, spiritual emotional maturity, they did not learn to distinguish the right from wrong, the truth from lie, to work on the processing reality, and especially to love the truth and follow it even when the price is high. And so they believe the lie because they have delighted in wickedness. All right, Lou? I think a beautiful prime example of this understanding of who God is and where things come from was Job. I'm rereading the book of Job, and I don't think there's anybody in the whole Bible except for Jesus who was tested like Job was. And he didn't know that it was coming from the devil, that God had given the devil permission to have access to him short of death. And yet he knew God so well that in spite of everything he was going through, he stayed true to God, which is just a beautiful picture, I think, of what God wants each of us to be when the hard times come, that going to be harder times coming between now and the time Jesus comes. And he wants us to know him so well that no matter what happens, the false miracles or whatever else it is, that we see God's hand and stay true. Okay, so when the friends come and say, come on, Job, we respected you greatly because of your estate, wealth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell us, just confess, what have you done? What have you committed? And long before any message of righteousness by faith is overtly preached, he says, I can't think of anything that I have committed that would deserve this. I am clean like a lily. Imagine a contemporary of Abraham has such a beautiful understanding of righteousness by faith that his standing with God is not determined on the basis of his performance, but on the basis of his relationship of trust with God. That's astounding. Larry? Something that we were just discussing about the altar and the fire and the comment that, come on, your gods are asleep. Last lesson, we were talking about God meddling in the human life. And that's something that in the Old Testament, there is no record of the false gods meddling in the lives of their believers. The living God is the only one who meddled in the life of people. Is it conceivable that as we get closer to the end, that that also becomes something that the false ideas that somehow or another 
And if you're talking about the, the powers of miracles, I suppose that would be a false God that is somebody who is actively meddling in your life for the idea of making it better. Or is that off base? I'm trying to think of the things and the implications that are different than what we've been raised with. And that did come to mind when we're talking about this. Yeah. And it's very interesting that the further you get on the timeline, the less of this you have. And so after the coming of Jesus, you don't get much of obvious interference with the fate of humanity. So the more of the scriptural basis you have for making up your mind, the less the need of God to interfere, which is a very interesting perspective because in our spiritual life and experiencing of God's presence, the continual or repeated refrain from many people is that the closer you are to God, the more of this interference you are going to experience, the greater miracles you are going to see. But obviously, you didn't get this from reading the storyline of the Bible. Because as we mentioned, when we talked about the first angel's message and the Sabbath, that the closer you come to God, the greater you have the capacity for autocratia, for self-determination, for seeing what is right, what is wrong, for understanding what is God's will and what God wants you to do. And because our eternal destiny is not based on our performance, as long as we learn from our mistakes, that's the main point, because we are getting closer, we are getting more mature, rather than needing constant remote control that God tells us, turn left, turn right, do this, don't do that, because there is not very much self-control there. Sherry? I think every day we're making choices, and we're either getting closer to God and listening to Him more, or listening to Him less, or correcting that as we're going along. And I think that process of getting acquainted with God, understanding Him better, and having Him infuse those principles in our lives, I think that that protects us in the end a lot for being able to recognize and discriminate between what is good and what is bad. But I think for a lot of the people who have not had that walk and who have had a different picture of God, when the temptations come, it's very familiar. It's the God they have been worshiping already. And so it's much harder for them to make that discrimination. This seems like, yes, this is the true God. They're accustomed to control. They're accustomed to a lot of the aspects that come from Satan, but may wear different clothing. Yes, and that's part of coming out of Babylon, because we are discussing the second angel's message. This part of growing in a relationship with God is getting to know his method of working, his voice the pattern in our lives so that we can be closer to him and sure when we recognize his footsteps, footprints in our work and how he works. Thank you, Sherry. Michael Bell? I feel that I'm constantly assaulted by things other than God. I don't say that these people are ungodly, but I get messages about buy this new all-electric vehicle and your life will become complete. Or take this vacation trip and you'll be fulfilled, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, lots of it. And there are distractions from my focus on trying to lead a decent life and trying to accord to people with whom I come in contact their own individual human dignity and trying to really love God, love God and love my neighbor. I think of Mother Teresa, who, well, she said something with which I agree. 
in my own life is that I know that God won't give me anything I can't handle, but why does God keep testing me? And that just goes on and on and on. And I sometimes want to say, are you paying attention to what I'm going through here? Even though it's probably small potatoes. Yeah, thank you. Olivius? So my mind is going in a couple of different directions. I kind of want to go back to the memory text a little bit. And kind of what kicked us off is frogs catch their prey with their tongue. And I think Jesus or someone said that the tongue is a fire. It can set the whole person ablaze. And I was reading in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And that brought me back to the memory text. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So that it's the truth that sanctifies. So is there a contrast here between like people are not bothering to study for themselves. They're just listening, right? The tongue speaks and people hear the words, but do they come back and prove, verify, see what actually the truth that God has written, has laid down, has left for us to understand and consume and process? This is where my mind is thinking, my mind is going. <laughs> Can someone help me? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that's why you need the community of faith. Otherwise, those of us who are intellectual Christians can easily create an impression. Unless you are like me, you don't have a chance to survive the time of trouble or the eschatological crisis. While those who are activistic or Christians with the gift of comfort and empathy, they feel, man, my joy is not to go through thick tomes of theological books to sort out the truth from uh, error. But we each one can help one another to stay on the right course, because it's not only intellectual aspect, it's also the relational aspect of Christianity. Henry? I think that at the end of times, God's meddling continues to happen, but it's counterintuitive. In the book of Exodus, he tells Moses, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. It was necessary at one time for him to show that he was the Almighty. It was necessary at that moment to make the display of power. Not because that his method, because that's what the language that was understood at that time. And he was willing to lower himself to that point and make that, that type of revelation. But then he comes and lives among us though some miracles, but not as a sharp display of power. Actually, it's a display of humility, humbleness. He is not a threat for the government. He is not a threat for anybody else. He's a threat for the ideology. He is not using the power to overcome people. He is using the power to overcome hearts, minds. And at the end of times, I think that the biggest meddling that God can do and the biggest manifestation is no longer power, but restrain of power, because that'll settle everything if it becomes just a miracle made by Satan and then God making a bigger one, right? Like just a challenge here who makes it bigger, but actually the restraint of power, the one that has everything in control and all capacity to do anything that he can just keeps silent because the demonstration is no longer about power, but the character. 
So that is to me an intense meddling, but counterintuitive. Now he is showing it at the loudest with one word spoken on one miracle made. And he becomes a threat to the establishment because they already figured it out. They know what God is supposed to do. They know what Messiah is supposed to do. They know what is the proper way of keeping the Sabbath. And if Jesus dares to challenge their status quo, then he becomes the enemy, not the messenger from God, not the corrective voice that you want to listen to, to get closer to God, but a threat to our power, position of chosen nation, being better than others. And so you end up with everybody else is subhuman, sub-Jewish, whatever, sub-Christian, sub-Adventist, instead of the all-embracing rule of God, where women, children, Samaritans, Syrophoenicians, they are all welcome into this kingdom that he is bringing. Yeah, well said. Let's go to Patrick. I think it's significant that after the, call it the exodus from Babylon, the coming out of Babylon with Israel, that's when God seemed to be changing the way he did things. When you think about Zechariah 4, where mm -hmm. he says, it's not by might, nor by power, but it's by my spirit. And I, I was reflecting on this because for many years as a church pastor, I was always telling, <laughs> almost pursuing the might and the power and wanting to see the miracles, etc. But maybe we should be thinking, actually, that's going down the wrong direction. We should be pursuing much more of the, yeah, the spirit of God, the still small voice, the character of who God is. If you want to develop emotionally mature spirituality in your members in your local church. Lou, thank you, Patrick. That was very perceptive and very helpful. Yes, and that's exactly the point I was going to bring out, Patrick. I'm glad you did, because apart from the indwelling Holy Spirit, no matter how much theological training we have had, no matter how many things we understand about the rules and the regulations and every other aspect of Christianity, we are not safe to save, as Graham would say. And it is only what's going to get us through between now and the time Jesus comes is that daily indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's something that we need to really continue to understand and to seek that indwelling and pray that he will just come in and change everything about us that needs to be changed and prepare us for what lies ahead. As Christians, we know there's a lot coming up, and I don't have any of that kind of strength, and most of us don't. And if we think we do, we, we're in trouble probably. So it's the reliance upon the Holy Spirit and the indwelling continually. So I thank you, Patrick, for bringing that up. Thank you. Okay, Livius, and then we need to bring this to a conclusion. What it means for Paul and his Babylon the Great? so that it becomes the good news for you and me and for everybody. Patrick's comment kind of maybe closed my original thought in that maybe the itching ears, like we're rejecting that still small voice, like we're listening to our own voice. How many groups are doing like what we're doing? How many different religious entities, people from different nationalities, different denominations are studying like we're studying, you know, and who's to say that, well, I don't want to put us in a special block, but is everyone listening to the prompting of the spirit as we read or are they like, 
like listening to their own voice. I was kind of reminded in Judges where I think there's a whole string of statements in Judges where it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So we're just maybe rejecting that still small voice. Yep. Michael? I think of Karl Barth was asked one time the significance of his Christian beliefs and what's the most important aspect that he's learned. He was this great theologian. He said, Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. Nothing more profound than that. And it, it is profound. Thank you. Iris? I would like to suggest from my experience that this very fact gives significance to the trials and tribulations, the small ones, that we face ongoingly. I don't know if you are anything like me. I sometimes yearn more than anything for just an ordinary peaceful life. <laughs> and instead, this last week marked 20 years that I came to Loma Linda and started the PhD program. So that triggered quite a bit of reminiscing for me. And even though God directed, redirected my life in a powerful way at the time, it was not a smooth journey. <laughs> it was nothing but sailing in smooth water. And as I look back, I can see his hand in so many ways. But through the challenges, for example, Neil said earlier, the Abraham journey, God took for me away everything that I had thus far placed my faith on. I was a nurse. I could support myself. I had security in Europe and all of that. And all of that was stripped away. And there was very little clarity, you know, how I would even go through the PhD program because the church withdrew all support the minute I started here. But as I look back, I can see that it was a powerful way of learning to trust in God. I said that intellectually before. I say now it has been experientially true. And I've had to learn to walk through the darkness, trusting that voice that was with me and learning to recognize that voice. So sorry for taking so long, but I think we should not reject and underestimate what God is doing through these ordinary trials and difficulties in our lives, each time inviting us to trust him more, each time to surrender more our desire to be in control and allow him to lead. And as we look back, I personally can only sing his praises for his faithfulness, for his goodness, for the remarkable way in which he has led. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Aris. That's a powerful testimony about following God's leading in your life and the life of your family. And it's very strong and convincing. If you look at the outline on the page one of study notes, you can see the headings there, the old lie of immortality, the Babylon, the center of sun worship, the call to faithfulness. And in the study notes from four to six, I try to develop that little bit. But because emotions are the strongest part of our personality, in the world in which you and I live today, if I feel strongly about something, then it's true. That's the basic premise of operation of the system, how we operate. If you believe that you can communicate with dead people, that they have a source of supernatural knowledge, then can you imagine how you are sitting duck to a deception? 
that your grandma dies and you know she did not trust the banks, so she stored the cash somewhere and you go through the house, you don't find it. And then someone tells you, I can make sure that you can talk to your grandma. And when you talk to her and yeah, the voice is her, the mannerism is her. And then you finally say, and grandma, tell us, where did you put all those money? We searched the whole house, didn't find it. And she laughs and says, oh, that's simple. Just go there and you will find it. And you go there and there is a million dollars stuck there. Are you going to believe that or are you going to believe Ecclesiastes 9.5, which says that dead people don't know anything? Because if there is a supernatural power, then that information where the money is stacked is not hidden from the supernatural powers of demons and evil spirits, to quote Revelation 18. If you have an eight-year-old daughter who dies of leukemia, and somebody in your grief tells you, I can arrange that you can talk to her. And you talk to her, and then she suddenly blurts out, and mom, dad, I know that you started studying the Bible recently, having some Bible studies, but let me tell you, I'm okay, nothing hurts me, I'm all right. Are you going to believe the emotional witness, or are you going to take an interpretation? If the whole evangelical world believes there is a secret rapture coming and then you hear on the news that something happens that cannot be easily explained and your neighbor comes to you and says, it's your fault because you have always told me not to believe this nonsense, but now the rapture has taken place and I am left behind and it's because I trusted you and your judgment. How is that going to influence your assurance? It was interesting how the Israelites were always attracted to the sun worship and you know from the religious world of the ancient Middle East that Israelites are not the only ones who offer sacrifices. Israelites are not the only ones who have a sanctuary, but what God does, it turns around the meaning of those sacrifices. He turns around the sanctuary. So instead of bowing down to the east, to the sun, he turns it around and teaches them, no, that's not the solution. That's not where the resolution comes from. And you know what's interesting? In the book of Genesis, going east means going away from God. But if you look at Revelation 16, 12, the drying of Euphrates is so that it prepares the opportunity for the kings from the east, for the rescue mission of Jesus. Can you see how God adjusts to the thinking of people and the solution finally comes from the east? And so if you look at those things, you can see the parallelism, how it's easy in the world where there are the things which are worshipped, quote-unquote, by the majority. And if you start questioning it, you are the suspicious one, not the mature one. Or you can condemn the idols of Egypt, the idols of Babylon and everybody and everything around you, but then it's not the positive and motivating context in which the fallen, the Babylon, the great is given in the context of Revelation. Sherry. Even while this is true and this is dangerous, I think we can't take away something from someone that's precious to them and that is helping them get through life until they have something better to replace it with. I think it's cruel to try to take that away or denounce that if it's giving them comfort and helping them. God will find ways, like you were just mentioning. God adapts and finds ways to reach each of us with the Holy Spirit and help us grow and learn. And we don't have to run ahead of God in trying to convince people that something is false that they're believing, I think. Yes, and that's what Jesus does. He says to the disciples, I have many things to tell you, but I am not going because you cannot bear it. It would do more harm than good. So to quote Ellen White, some people are faster than the angels. Even the angels cannot keep up with them because they are so fast in bringing the truth, you know, the plain testimony. 
to people and taking away from them what is helping them to stay together and to hold on and God doesn't do it. And so you are thinking that you are testifying about the truth while you are doing the work of the devil because you are taking away the scaffolding without which people cannot live. All right, the message of the second angel is don't expect the solution from the institution. The system is broken. People believe, but this time it's going to be different. And God says, it's not going to be different because if the system is broken, the system cannot provide a solution. So where does the solution come from? Now, there are three messages. If you read the context of Isaiah, where in chapter 21, the good news first is proclaimed, the Babylon is fallen. The first message is, your God reigns. Can you see how the message, your God reigns, at the time of Isaiah, at the time of Babylonian captivity, was the positive good news? Because they can't believe that God would give up Jerusalem into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And they can quote the proof text from the Psalms, Zion will not fall. She is invincible. God is on our side. And Jeremiah needs to tell them, guys, no amount of quoting inspired texts is going to reverse this. Babylon is going to be victorious. Babylon is going to defeat Jerusalem. And it's not because God doesn't love you. It's not because God has forsaken you. It's because God loves Babylon as well. He has a plan. And he can teach you things in Babylon that you would never learn back in Jerusalem. So your God reigns means that God has not abandoned his people. He did not abandon the covenant. He's still at work, but he reigns in a different way. And if you look at under number eight, there is the text that Patrick quoted. He works through the work of a servant. He works through the work of the spirit, not the Babylonian way of might and power. And when the message comes... For those exiles in the land of Babylon, the Babylon is fallen. It's a message. And because your God reigns, you can go home again. It's a positive message. It's the gospel. Now, the second thing that you can see from Isaiah, from the servant songs is, your God is coming back. So when the message is given, the Babylon is fallen, it's a promise that the powers that oppose God are going to be broken. They are already broken. Notice the message is given in the past tense, just like the Old Testament prophecies. Old Testament Hebrew uses the past tense to speak about the future realities, because from the perspective of God, it is as if it already happened. To convey the assurance that God is behind it, the prophets speak in the past tense about the future events. Babylon is fallen. You may not see it. If you look around, you see Babylon prospering and still has the grasp and the dominion over the minds of people. But the good news is Babylon is already fallen. People just don't see it. And that means your God is coming back. It may seem that the Babylon is triumphing, but it's not. It may seem that God has abandoned Israel, but he is not. He's going to return. It's going to be public. It's going to be visible. And everybody, every flesh will see it, that he's coming back. And that's why it's good news. And the last one from Isaiah 52.10, that God is doing the work of rescuing. Now, you may not see it. You may not imagine it, how he does it. And chapter 53, then the very next chapter says, and we thought that he was 
forsaken by God. He was hurt for our iniquities, stricken by God, but he was doing the work of rescuing. Because by being nailed to the cross, by refusing to use power, remember, what is Babylon all about? Using the power in the name of good, in the name of God. We do this to you in order to help you. All the abusers use that. Jesus died on the cross, yet he was doing the work of rescuing. And now all the nations will see it. Now they will benefit from it. And that's why Revelation 18.4 says, you can leave Babylon. You can go out of Babylon, my people, because God loves his people in spite of the fact that they are still in Babylon. Come out of her, my people, so that you do not share in her sins and you do not receive of her plagues. So coming out of Babylon is the process of allowing God to work on our minds, to wash out the Babylonian way of thinking so that we can see, we can hear, we can perceive how God is working through the Holy Spirit in today's world. Babylon is fallen. The victory of God is assured. People may not see it. You may not distinguish it by watching the evening news. It may still seem that the evil is triumphing over the good. But if you read the prophecies, there is good news. Babylon is fallen. God is at work in you, through you, and around us. So that he is going to have what? 12 times, 12 times 1,000, 144,000 of those who follow the Lamb. There is going to be a significant community of quality people who are on God's side. And there you have the 12 for the Old Testament, the 12 for the New Testament community, times 1,000. Remember, David was a captain over 1,000 in Saul's army. So perfect community of those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes and whose father's name, the character, is on their forehead and who think that God is still reigning, still coming back, and still gaining the victory in spite of the fact that we might not see it from the perspective of the 1st of October or 9th of June, 2022 or 23. And that's the message of the second angel, a positive gospel in the world of confusion in which you and I live. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you did not abandon this world, but you are still at work in a powerful way, even though we may not always see it. And so we pray that you give us sensitive minds and open hearts, and most of all, that you give us love for truth and sensitivity to the work of your Holy Spirit, so that we are not gullible and easily deceived, but that we can encourage one another and help one another to see how you are working in our individual lives, how you are working in the work of the community of believers, and in spite of all the frustrating and disappointing things that we all witness around us and within us that we can have the assurance that you are still at work and you have not abandoned us or your church, your community of your believers. Give us that perspective and help us to be faithful and endure as you called us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.